1: The death toll from COVID 19 nears 1 million people globally. Infections continue to rise, and in Europe, a second wave of the outbreak is threatening countries and their healthcare systems as governments try to prevent another round of lockdowns. So, what has been learned in the battle against COVID 19? Hello, and welcome to Babbage from Economist Radio, our weekly podcast on technology and science. I'm Kenneth Cukier, a senior editor at The Economist. And coming up, how can COVID-19 be controlled?
2: The testing and tracing systems in particular have been absolutely crucial in this pandemic. And countries that had them in the first place, even before the pandemic began, primarily in Asia,
3: have done much, much better.
1: What do scientists still need to understand?
3: There's been a lot of anxiety about the fact that you see antibodies to SARS-CoV-2 wane after a few months.
1: And how can the virus be eliminated entirely?
4: I would definitely say Taiwan is post-pandemic. In many ways, life has returned to normal with some modifications.
1: Today's show is devoted to the pandemic as the world nears the tragic milestone of one million fatalities. There has not been an aspect of life that hasn't been affected. Scientists are working fast on potential vaccines. Governments allocated around $10 trillion in relief measures. And people are exercising agency by social distancing and wearing masks. Yet COVID-19 is still with us and will be for some time. Natasha Loder is the Economist Health Policy Editor, and Slavea Chenkova is our healthcare correspondent. Hello, Natasha. Hello, Slavea. Hello,
2: hello. Hello, Ken.
1: Natasha, let's start with you. Please give us an overview of the current situation in terms of infections, cases,
3: and deaths. So... What we've measured is about 32 million cases globally and 1 million dead. The availability of data is very variable between countries. Some countries are testing a lot. Some are not testing very much. And even the way that we're counting deaths differs. So we're miscounting in all sorts of messy ways. We know that this isn't the full picture. But what we do know is that since about May, about 5,000 people a month have been dying.
1: Slovenia. The rate of fatalities per case seems to be lower than before. Why is that?
2: One reason why we are not seeing deaths rise at the same rate as cases, uh, at least in Europe and parts of America, is because younger people are predominantly those who are getting infected now. And they're among the people who, who, who get tested as well, who are counted as cases. And as we know, they're not as vulnerable to the disease as older people. Back in the spring, many of the cases counted were people who are in hospitals. So the denominator is different. Now your denominator includes people who, who are not as susceptible to becoming seriously ill. And what about treatment?
1: It seems like doctors are better at treating severe cases.
2: That's absolutely right. We are seeing here in Britain, for example, about half of patients uh, in intensive care units died back in March and April. But by the end of June, only 30% died. So uh, that's quite, quite a significant improvement, which is a result of doctors knowing better uh, how to treat patients, uh, not to rush to put them on ventilators, because many of them just do with simpler ways of oxygen supplementation. And since then, we've had a steroid drug, dexamethasone, which has been approved for the treatment of some of the most severely ill patients. And that will additionally uh, decrease mortality.
3: There's some question in my mind as to the extent to which the sort of 30% mortality rate that we're seeing in British ICUs does or doesn't include the use of dexamethasone. And we're sort of at a state where we're not quite sure as we haven't got all the data yet.
1: Okay, let me move on to policy and the economy. Back to you, Natasha. Around the world, there's been a patchwork of lockdowns and restrictions, sometimes confusing advice on how to control the virus. What have we learned? And are lockdowns effective?
3: Well, one of the really important things we've learned is that you need different things in different situations. And, you know, lockdowns absolutely do work, but they are pose huge costs on society. And really, you need to deploy them as a last resort. What you need is to do a variety of other things, if possible, such as imposing perhaps restrictions that will slow the spread of the virus and asking people to wear masks, to socially distance, to stop situations perhaps where super spreading events can happen. We now know things like choirs are risky or maybe pubs. And, you know, different countries have different priorities. And so we shouldn't be surprised if we see that some are closing pubs early, but others are not closing them at all. And what governments now realise is they have a range of levers that they can pull. And so what I would say is what we have learned is the key factors are, is you need to know where your infection is in the population. You need a good healthcare system And you need to communicate well with people about what is expected of them.
1: Now, from what we've learned about aerosol transmission, it seems like social distancing not only is the most common policy, but also an effective one, albeit difficult to enforce. Does it work? And how long do you think we'll be social distancing for?
3: Well, social distancing absolutely does work. I mean, on the question of aerosols, I mean, we certainly know that they're a factor. What's debated is how important a factor. Now, to my mind, that question is going to be much more important in countries like America, perhaps, where they have things like forced air heating. You know, if you're in a country where you Don't have as much of that, then really the only question is how far do you want to be distant? And you kind of know that two meters is good, being outdoors is good, and that if you're going into an enclosed environment where people have been, yes, then of course you have the potential for aerosols to sort of linger in the air. Here's the thing we're not really going to tame this epidemic, pandemic, until we start to reach much higher levels of immunity in the population.
1: And what about masks? They obviously do work, but should they be used all the time?
3: Well, again, it's one of those questions that, you know, is going to depend on the, the country and the place and the situation. So when you mean all the time, I mean, you know, no, not if you're walking around your house, clearly. I think we know how this virus spreads pretty much, give or take the debate about aerosols. And so, You know, if you're in a situation where you're close enough to someone to pick up the virus or you're in a room where the virus may be, you need to be wearing a mask. There's no question about it.
1: Slavea, back to you. Sweden didn't lock down when the rest of Europe did. What were the pros and cons of the strategy and what have scientists learned?
2: So Sweden indeed stands out by not going into full lockdown, but they did implement many of the social distancing measures that we are seeing uh, around the world now so they recommended that people work from home when they could they have social distancing in public transport and bars and restaurants and even though life hasn't stopped the way it did with lockdowns in europe it definitely has changed a lot over there One of the things that did happen in Sweden is that they had a very high number of deaths, much, much higher than neighboring countries, uh, Denmark, Finland, and Norway. But what we are seeing now is that cases and deaths in Sweden have declined very sharply, and they're not having this resurgence or second wave we are seeing in other places in Europe. It isn't clear why, why that's happened. It may yet change, but it remains to be seen, maybe in perhaps a year uh, when this pandemic has had more time uh, to go around to see whether Sweden does better than other countries, and not just on COVID, but also on all the other mental health and other healthcare services that have been disrupted by, by the COVID situation.
1: Sweden has experienced around 90,000 cases of COVID-19 and almost 6,000 deaths. As the debate over its strategy continues in epidemiological circles, perhaps scientists should instead turn to Taiwan. At the outset of the pandemic, Taiwan was expected to be one of the worst hit places due to its proximity to China. Instead, there have been just over 500 cases and seven deaths out of a population of almost 24 million.
4: So at this point, Taiwan hasn't had a single case of domestic transmission in five months.
1: Katherine Tai is a political scientist at MIT and has been looking into Taiwan's response to the pandemic.
4: One thing that's really striking about Taiwan is that The response didn't start this year, but actually started at the very end of 2019, um, when there were first reports about these cases of like a novel coronavirus or like a respiratory disease in Wuhan. I was in Taiwan at the time, actually, for the elections, and the Taiwanese CDC at that point already started kind of like temperature testing for people who are coming from Wuhan. And those checks were then gradually expanded also to people who were coming from all of mainland China as things developed later in January
1: Taiwan never imposed a lockdown to control the virus.
4: Since March, all foreign travelers that have been coming to Taiwan have essentially been subject to like a two-week quarantine that has also been enforced. If you were a contact person of an indigenous case, you also had to go into quarantine and essentially would be monitored. So in many ways, there were very small-scale outbreaks, but they essentially were able to kind of like cut off those transmission chains.
1: I asked Audrey Tang, Taiwan's digital minister, How is technology used to monitor quarantines?
0: When you return to Taiwan from abroad, you're required to either A, go to a physical quarantine hotel where you're physically apart from leaving for 14 days, or B, you can go back to your own home, but then your phone is put into what we call the digital fence. And instead of asking you to turn on GPS or Bluetooth or Wi-Fi or 5G or install an app, what it actually does is very simple. You just have to keep your phone turned on, and that's it. Because the signal strength measured by the uh, communication towers of the major telecoms already know roughly where your phone is 15 meters radius using triangulation. And that's data that we already collect in the telecom level for the use of SMS on earthquake advanced warnings or flood advanced warnings and so on. So people understand the norm around the sort of data collection that it would not interact with other applications running on their phone. But if they do go outside of that digital fence, then the SMS send sent not only to them, but also to local police officers and health officers. So if they keep in their home for 14 days, each day we send them around 100 US dollars as a stipend. But if they break out of that quarantine during those two weeks, then of course, they pay us back in the form of a fine that's a thousand times more. And so very few people escape the quarantine.
1: But technology wasn't just used to enforce quarantines. Taiwan's government used existing data for its digital response without the need for any new apps.
4: There was the system that they put into place where they're combining travel data with domestic health data. That's kind of this health database that they have that's part of the national health insurance. The way this was explained to me is that essentially if someone goes to a hospital and shows, for example, COVID-like symptoms, then the hospital might be able to access this person's travel history and might f- see quite easily that this person traveled to a high risk area.
1: It's clear that Taiwan's government was not prepared to lock down. Instead, they ensured that the traditional measures of hand washing, social distancing, and mask wearing were in place even when they were in low supply.
4: A third thing that also happened is an online rationing system that essentially helped with the rationing of masks. Basically, civil society hackers built this website that helped implement this rationing system that was based on people's national health insurance cards.
1: Audrey Tang, the digital minister, quickly supported the coders. She made sure that the mask finding app had access to the government's database of pharmacies that identified where masks were available.
0: If you use the mask map, you will see first that where you are in Taiwan and also a lot of small red and green triangles near you. And the red ones means that they are out of the mask stock and the green ones means that they still have some. And so if you queue in line, you can actually refresh that map over and over again to see that person queuing before you and exactly how many medical masks did they purchase. Of course, later on, there's a pre-ordering option as well if you don't have the time to queue in line. And all in all, in just a couple of months, it ensured that close to 90% of people have access to medical masks and wear them regularly.
1: Masses of data were used to respond to the crisis, but in the rush to act,
0: What about privacy? Once you're out of the 14-day currency window, there's no constitutional basis to keep that data any longer, so we promptly delete it. And that's because we never declare a state of emergency. Each and every data collection that we do need to go through the uh, parliamentary oversight and authorization and interpolation too. And so when we explain the digital fence and how it works before a public hearing session in our parliament, the approval rate of the CECC measures jumped from 91%, which is already pretty high, to 94%. But of course, we still thank the remaining 6% for keeping us honest and accountable.
1: Catherine believes that the approach of cutting off chains of transmission into the territory was possible because the experience of SARS in 2003 hadn't been forgotten.
4: Around 70 people died at the time. It's, it's, it's ironic in many ways, because now saying that 70 people died is somehow something that we've all gotten used to. But for Taiwan, this was really like a big a bit catastrophe. And so I think that's something that really left a deep impression that for one, really made sure that there were institutions in place that could be implemented once something that looked like SARS emerged again, and at the same time also meant that there's a sense of necessity.
1: And so far, they have prevented another situation like the disaster in 2003.
4: I would definitely say Taiwan is post-pandemic. Things are essentially back to normal and Taiwan at this point might be maybe the most normal country in the world. So there's still mask mandates, especially for like indoors. So for example, in schools, children would all be wearing masks, but you can essentially gather again. Um, you can gather outside, you can gather inside with masks. People will be wearing masks on the metro. People go to like art I- exhibitions. There's a Pride March planned for late like October when it traditionally happens in Taipei, with the exception that people are wearing masks and they are still being reminded to be careful to social distance and to wash their hands. In many ways, life has returned to normal with some modifications.
1: I asked Catherine, what would it take to implement similar measures in the West?
4: I'm actually kind of surprised that that necessary learning might may not necessarily be happening. I don't see much like new institution building. In many ways, it seems like there's a lot of patching happening of things that are obviously an issue. I haven't really seen that much kind of like forward thinking, but maybe that's something that's to come and that's only going to happen once the pandemic is over and people have a bit more space to think about these questions.
1: Our thanks to Catherine Tai at MIT and Taiwan's digital minister, Audrey Tang. Natasha, do you think that the West will learn from COVID 19 in the same way that Asian countries learned from SARS in 2003?
3: Yeah, I do. Although I think our memory for these events does fade very quickly, I think we won't forget our experience with masking. I do think that early on, that Asian countries were much more willing to do community masking because they were more convinced of its benefits. Whereas in other countries, we were much more sort of sceptical. The question was really not our mask good idea. It was like, are kind of homemade and fabric masks a good idea? That was really the question that was uncertain at first. So,
2: there. What do
1: you think?
3: The testing and tracing systems, in particular, have been absolutely
2: crucial in this pandemic and countries that had them in the first place, even before the pandemic began, primarily in Asia, have done much, much better. Countries in Europe, which set these systems up or uh, bolstered them, like Germany and Italy, have done much better than countries that wasted the first six months of the pandemic. So that's one big lesson that all countries can learn. And I think going into 2021, those systems will become better everywhere. The big problem is that you know whether people trust their governments and whether they're willing to comply with what they're asked to do. So if they don't, then they'll find a way around. You know, if they have symptoms, they would not ask for a test because they don't want to risk the inconvenience or financial hardships of having to self-isolate. If they are asked for the contact details of people they may have exposed to the virus, they may be more reluctant to share them. We already seen that in Europe, uh, contact tracers in Britain, France, Spain are only getting around three or four contacts per infected person compared to around 15 or 20 per person in Taiwan.
1: Coming up, what have scientists learned about immunity to COVID 19 and vaccines? When? Where? Who? As the flu season hits the Northern Hemisphere, scientists worry there may be a double outbreak of the flu and COVID-19. Fortunately, evidence suggests otherwise. In the Southern Hemisphere, like Australia and New Zealand, the flu almost vanished during the winter. To find out why, check out the September 14th episode of The Intelligence, our daily current affairs podcast. Just search for Economist Radio on your podcast app, and it's the episode of September 14th. Slavea, over to you. What do we know about the seasonality of COVID-19? Does it get worse during the winter?
2: It is expected to get worse because it's a virus that really prefers indoor spaces. And as weather gets colder and the days get shorter, people will start socializing more indoors. So we're definitely expecting a rise in COVID cases just because of that. But the big question is whether this will coincide with the usual flu season when hospital beds fill up. And there are worries that this may happen and hospitals will be overwhelmed. But some of these fears may not come to pass. That's so interesting. And
1: Natasha, over to you. You've been looking into the contested question of immunity. So if someone has had the virus, can they catch it again?
3: Yes, they can. But we don't know what that means. We have seen some cases. They could very well be exceptional cases. So we can't really read too much into that at the moment. There's been a lot of anxiety about the fact that you see antibodies to SARS-CoV-2 wane after a few months in people who have had COVID-19, or at least some of them who've had it. And my position is just we need to wait and see because there are other aspects of the immune system, the T cells, for example, that provide long term memory against infections that we're not really looking at when we measure antibody waning.
1: What does the immunity question mean for vaccine development?
3: So it's very difficult to draw a straight line between, you know, natural immunity and vaccine-induced immunity because the kind of immunity that vaccines will give us will be completely different, well not totally different but certainly different. And so, you know, it's perfectly possible that we could design vaccines that give you a really strong and lasting response and immunity to COVID-19 where natural immunity doesn't do that. You know, there's a wide range of possibilities. And I think we should try and be optimistic about the potential for vaccines. Yes, um, they are going to work. We just don't know how well yet.
1: Let me ask about this because I think it's on everyone's mind. How close are we to having a vaccine that's approved? And secondly, how close are we to having a vaccine that is also deployed?
3: What we traditionally mean by approval is when you have the results from tens of thousands of people, at least 30,000, maybe 60,000 from multiple sites, from lots of different kinds of people, ages of people. You pull that all together, you sift through it, you do a proper data analysis, you wrap it up in a bow and you present it to the drug regulatory authority. They then sift through it with a fine tooth comb and eventually say yes or no as to whether or not something should be given approval for use. Now, that sort of process, even accelerated, is going to probably take until the start of next year. However, what people are talking about is something called an emergency authorization, which could happen sooner. And In emergencies, regulatory authorities have more flexibility to allow drugs and vaccines onto the market. That's worrying a lot of people because we've seen some pretty sketchy things come out of America's FDA when it comes to drugs. With vaccines, you have to be much more careful because they're given to healthy people, not sick ones. So yes, we could see some emergency approvals before the end of the year in Britain, in America maybe in some other countries as well. Even if that happens, my expectation is that it would be given to a limited number of people who are at very high risk and it would be done kind of quite carefully.
1: So for an ordinary person who's not a healthcare professional, who's of prime working age, when do you think that they're going to have to roll up a shirt sleeve?
3: So the big question about the future is about how fairly we're going to share the vaccines that are available. And What we need to be doing globally is making sure that our priority populations are vaccinated as soon as possible. And that means that people who are healthy probably need to wait for longer. I do imagine that a lot of countries will want to get their general population vaccinated by this time next year going into the flu season, that is. The big question is how much vaccine there is and whether it's available or not. The Serum Institute in India, which is the world's largest manufacturer of vaccine, says that it will take until 2024 to produce enough doses to inoculate everyone in the world. That gives you an idea of the global scale of this problem. However, it could be that we do mass vaccinations starting, you know, towards the sort of third quarter of next year.
1: Now, Slovea, people want to see an end to this horrendous year 2020. But tell me, what will the year 2021 look like in the fight against the virus?
2: I think uh, the first half of the year around most of the world may may look very much like it does now. We still have to probably wear masks and uh, do social distancing, It all depends on what transpires about immunity, whether as more people get infected and possibly become immune, less strict rules on social distancing may be sufficient to keep infections from rising as they are now. The other unknown is, of course, the vaccine, as Natasha said, depending on when it comes, how much of it can be produced, what kind of effectiveness it has. That will be the real game-changer if
1: there is one in 2021. Slavea, Natasha, thank you very much.
2: Thank you, Ken. Thank you.
1: To read our full reporting by Slavea and Natasha on how the pandemic has progressed, subscribe to The Economist. For your best introductory deal, just go to economist.com slash podcast offer. Also in the forthcoming edition, how COVID-19 is affecting poverty. And in the science section, why funnel spiders are an accidental killer. The subscription link is in the show notes for the episode. And that's all for this episode of Babbage. While you're with us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It does make a difference. I'm Kenneth Kukia, and in London, social distancing, of course, this is The Economist.